This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I'm Murray Baumgarten. I was the founding director of the Dickens Project, and I'm currently the director of Jewish Studies at UCSC. And uh, I explain this to people that I'm interested in Dickens and in Jewish literature with a joke. And I suppose this joke should not be recorded for posterity. Uh, A uh, Jewish peddler arrives with two attache cases. And he opens them. And in one attache case are all these Jewish ritual materials, tefillin, talesim, mezuzot, amulets. He opens the other attache case. It's full of crosses, rosaries. His friend says, Moshe, how could you do this? He stops a minute and he says, from one God, can you make a living? (laughs) So this evening, we celebrate the entanglement of Jews as a minority and the majority culture of the West they live in. And we do this by honoring Charles Dickens. And that second best writer in English, William Shakespeare. (laughs) Charles Dickens was born on February 7, 1812, this day 195 years ago. We celebrate his achievement today. Honoring it, we also inquire into our fascination with his gallery of characters. That cast includes Fagin, central to Oliver Twist, one of Dickens's very early novels. Like Shylock, Fagin has entered the world stage as a powerful representation of a caricature, a stereotype, a realized Jew. Jews have responded to Fagin since his appearance, arguing with him, berating him, complaining to Dickens. In fact, in, I think it was 1856, Dickens sold his house on Tavistock Square to uh, a Jewish banker and his wife. And later on, his wife, Mrs. Davis wrote Dickens a note and said she admired all his work, but why had he uh, not done justice to her people? Dickens, a very clever writer and marketer, remembered this. And the last novel he lived to complete, Our Mutual Friend, happens to be my favorite novel, has a character in it named Raya, who is an answer to Fagin. It's worth reading. But of course, Fagin is the famous one, in part because he grows out of Shylock. And many Jews not only have argued with Fagin, they've sought to find redeeming features in his portrayal. Here, too, they echo the problematics of Jewish engagement with Shylock and the Merchant of Venice. 
and they continuously wonder if these works by the greatest playwright and fiction writers in English contributes to the spread of anti-Semitism. So there's an edge in all of this. Tonight our speaker, Michael Shapiro, professor of English at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, a scholar of Shakespeare who's written Children of the Revels and Boy Heroines in Disguise, a performer in the Bard's Place and a founder of a Shakespeare theater in uh, Champaign-Urbana, the Revels Players, and also the director of the Illinois program in Jewish studies. We'll talk on the Faganization of Shylock, Victorian burlesques of the Merchant of Venice. He is editing a book on Jewish responses to the Merchant of Venice, which will, I understand, include an essay on the Yiddish version of the Merchant of Venice, a very famous production and a very popular one in the Yiddish theater. Michael will talk tonight about the connections of Fagin and Shylock in these Victorian burlesques, which he will illustrate with slides. Afterwards, there'll be time for questions and discussion. Our lecture this evening is sponsored by the Dickens Project of the University of California and the Jewish Studies Program at the Santa Cruz campus of the University of California. It is made possible by the visionary support of Sanford and Helen Diller, who have endowed our program, the Corette Foundation, individual donors, and the David B. Gold Foundation. We're going to be videotaping this performance with the help of the Gold Foundation, and we expect uh, that it will be shown on uh, UCTV, which is a, a California-wide network of community college and community television stations. In supporting our work, these donors help us to articulate and trace the complex, sometimes difficult, and important connections between the majority culture of the West and its crucial it's very important Jewish minority. Please join me in welcoming Michael Shapiro. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Murray. Um, it's really quite uh, daunting to be here on Dickens's birthday and address the Dickens Project. Uh, um, I'm really a kind of interloper into the, uh, the 19th century. I, I was trained as a Shakespearean in, in the early modern period. And um, I, I've drifted, I drifted into Jewish studies too, and uh, it occurred to me at one point that I could uh, make my life less schizoid by combining, by working on The Merchant of Venice. And uh, having written about The Merchant of Venice, I found I had nothing left at the moment to say about it, so I looked to the adaptations and revisions and appropriations, and it turned out to be quite a number of them. Uh, and uh, uh, they're very interesting. And um, I read a book uh, just about a year or two ago called Not Shakespeare by Richard Shore, uh, teaches in London. And uh, the book was published by Cambridge in 2002. Not Shakespeare is about the burlesques, very popular in the 19th century. 
And uh, it opened up a very interesting uh, uh, perspective for me because there are a number of, there are four of them uh, that are, uh, that I found. Uh, he mentions a couple, I found a couple others, and they're listed on the handout, uh, this handout, the four texts uh, are there. And they really uh, cast quite a different light uh, on Shakespeare and on, on Jewish life in the 19th century and the role of Jews in the 19th century. So I, uh, with a little encouragement from Murray, who visited Baumgarten, who visited my campus last year, I, I felt emboldened to uh, actually uh, prepare this paper. And I, I read it, a short version of it in Australia at the World Shakespeare Congress, and they're going to publish it in the proceedings. But I wasn't satisfied with it. I felt it needed more contextualizing and more information about, uh, about Jews. Uh, and so I continue to work on it, and it's still a work under construction, so I'd be very grateful for some comments and suggestions, uh, especially from those who know a lot more about the 19th century than I do, who are here. Um, so, uh, let me say a word about burlesques first. Uh, it's not what we think of burlesque in America. When I was a boy, 14, 15 years old, working at a flower shop in downtown Buffalo, I had to walk by the Palace Burlesque to get to the shop. It's a seedy part of downtown, and it was felt very wicked just to be walking by with these pictures. On, on, uh, <laughs> and uh, when I was a little older, I actually went once, and uh, it was a very seedy atmosphere indeed. There were men sitting with their coats on their laps, and, and girly dancers, and baggy pants comedians, and very tamed by what's going now, you know, in the last 15 years. This was the 50s. It was an, a really innocent time. But this is not what the English Victorian burlesques are about. Um, they are uh, theatrical, parodic theatrical entertainments, which flourished between 1840, roughly, and 1870, uh, mostly in London. They were basically travesties or send-ups of dramatic and literary works of Victorian high culture. Their targets included opera, melodrama, poetic drama, classical mythology, Arthurian legend, Arabian tales, English history, and modern plays, that is, plays by Wilde and Ibsen, and, of course, Shakespeare. Written virtually overnight and rehearsed for a week, these burlesques typically ran for a month or two in West End theaters and sometimes went to provincial houses. As they were usually 60 to 90 minutes in length, it seems that two were considered an evening's entertainment. They featured songs, sung to airs and arias, as well as parlor songs. Such music was familiar to burlesque audiences, for this was the age when the parlor piano became de rigueur in any middle-class or upper-middle-class household, a development which led to the rise of an industry which printed and sold affordable sheet music to be played on those parlor pianos and sung by those gathered round it. Uh, John Broom's burlesque, one of the four that I, I found, for example, uses, among other melodies, the title aria from Donizetti's L'Elysir de More, an Italian opera which premiered in 1832, and Nora Creina, which is a parlor song about a winsome Irish last. And everybody would have recognized the melodies. My favorite of these appropriated airs occurs in Francis Telford's playlet and is there described as a cantata disconsolata. It is the moment when Shylock reports the news of his daughter's elopement to his friend Tubal. Then it goes like this. Oh, Tubal, dear, did you not hear the news that's going round? My Jessica has cut away and nowhere can be found. You recognize that? You'll hear it more on St. Patrick's Day next month. It's the wearing of the green. And uh, that's just a lot of Irish stuff comes, comes in here. 
So uh, besides this kind of thing, recontextualizing and uh, furnishing new melodies uh, to these songs, the burlesque were farcical in nature, fast-paced, and enlivened by brisk dancing. The dialogue was laced with topical allusions, both political and theatrical, and with the latest up-to-date slang. For example, the use of the word fast to mean trendy, the word tin to mean money. They also feature lots of puns, and in the printed text, these puns are italicized because you really have to reach for some of them. Uh, Shakespeare was castigated by Samuel Johnson for his addiction to punning. He called it Shakespeare's fatal Cleopatra. But Shakespeare is a marvel of self-restraint by comparison to the writers of these Victorian burlesques. Um, some of these puns are quite labored and shameless. Uh, for example, the subtitle of Telford's burlesque, which presents the play as the Jerusalem hearty joke. Yeah, well, they're worse to come. <laughs> uh, Victorian burlesque derived much of their humor from domesticating the characters and situations of their originals, such as making Portia the proprietor of a tavern, or turning Shylock, the Venetian moneylender, into the Jewish old clothes man of English popular culture, and thus a close cousin of Dickens' Fagin. Who were the audiences for these burlesques? They basically came from the bohemian subset of the educated middle class, the new urban fast crowd, comprising young men about town and presumably some female acquaintances, with disposable income and a taste for mockery of Victorian notions of respectability. They knew the targets of burlesque well enough to enjoy the parodic edge, and in the case of Shakespeare, were eager to mock Victorian bardolatry, that is, the fetishizing of Shakespeare, and to ridicule mainstream revivals of his work that were pillars of official establishment culture. Uh, Richard Schach, uh, who wrote the book I referred to before, um, argues that the authors of these parodic versions saw themselves as defending the true spirit of Shakespeare against what they regarded as pompous efforts to enlist Shakespeare in the cause of high Victorian seriousness. Their primary target was not Shakespeare himself, as I said, but rather the Victorian cult of Shakespeare, a cult that was fed and fed productions which featured lavish sets and painted scenery and a histrionic acting style which one uh, wag at the time described as the sepulchral style, where actors look more like animated statues than human beings. In a separate essay, Schalk describes what he calls the burlesque backlash as the comic attack upon the pious pretensions of legitimate Shakespearean culture. Now, within the Shakespeare canon, burlesque went after the tragedies, histories, and late romances, but not the comedies which, as Schalk suggests, are inoculated against such parodic treatment by their own moments or episodes of self-parody. Think of uh, Pyramus and Thisbe, for example, in The, in the Merchant of Venice, which, which parodies the story of the Athenian lovers to say nothing of Romeo and Juliet. However, writers of burlesques were drawn to one of Shakespeare's comedies, and that was The Merchant of Venice, perhaps because it was presented in mainstream revivals as the tragedy of Shylock. I want to... Uh, digress for a moment and talk a little bit about, uh, just we'll come back to the tragic Shylock. But first of all, uh, if, if you want to get the flavor, imagine the flavor going to one of these burlesques, think of going to see Monty Python live in a cabaret. That must have been something of the sort that it was like. Um, but until recently, theater historians and certainly Shakespeareans did not take these burlesques very seriously. Quite the opposite, they, they ignored them or worse. 
For example, Toby Lelyveld, who wrote a wonderful book called Shylock on the Stage, published in 1960, that's a stage history of the Merchant of Venice, has a final chapter which he calls Shylock Distorted, in which he reviles burlesques and similar spin-offs of the Merchant as the spread of a contagion which infected the theater with a rash. So her metaphor. <laughs> and she marvels, in her words, at how such uncreative borrowing from Shakespearean sources could possibly have coexisted with the sober portrayal of Shylock by Charles Keane and the tragic treatment by Edwin Booth. But that's the point. They did coexist. Now, uh, when I started the, the, as a Shakespearean in graduate school and early in my career, uh, that was more or less the standard attitude toward these burlesques. Uh, they were considered, my metaphor would be something like barnacles on the hull of the Shakespeare cannon ship. And they were there to be scraped off so that they would not uh, get in the way. Um, but now we've expanded the canon in all kinds of directions, and I'm not the only one who's run out of things to say about Shakespeare's plays themselves and are looking for other things to write about. So there is now a sub-industry uh, that is interested in the adaptations. At every um, Shakespeare Association of America uh, uh, annual meeting, there's usually a seminar on uh, adaptations now. Uh, there's an anthology that uh, two Canadian uh, scholars have put together on adaptations of Shakespeare. Uh, there are courses. I'm currently teaching a course uh, on uh, it's both an introduction to Shakespeare and adaptations of Shakespeare using that anthology. Um, I have a better metaphor now than barnacles. I, I have two metaphors. One, one is a Jewish metaphor, which is midrash. Midrash are the stories that the rabbis tell about the Bible. They answer questions that the narrative of the Bible leaves out. And uh, they, they become, in, in one sense, part of the larger study of the Bible. It's hard to study Bible without studying Midrash. An Indian colleague also compared the study of adaptation to the, the banyan tree. You know, the banyan tree grows from one trunk and sends out a branch, and then that branch sends down shoots, and that shoot will take root and start another trunk. And before you know it, there's a whole sort of colony of secondary and tertiary uh, banyan trees all coming off the same. So I think one way to look at the adaptation is that it's all a very rich um, conglomeration of things that Shakespeare is at the heart of it. Of course, you have to remember, we have to remember that Shakespeare himself was an adapter, that most of his plays, nearly all of his plays, uh, were adapted from pre-existing sources, Plutarch's Lives or Chronicles or Italian Novelli um, or uh, Romeo and Juliet from a long, dull narrative poem, so on and so forth. Uh, I think we, we can almost find all of the sources. There are a few that we haven't found yet. I think we'll find them one, one day. And so today, Shakespeare would be considered a mere adapter. Why doesn't he invent his own material? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> when I teach adaptation, uh, I ask two questions of these texts. I, I say, well, how, how imagine them, in what way are they acting as a critique of Shakespeare? Because this is only one take on the material, after all, and other ways to look at it. So what do they open up new ways of looking at what Shakespeare did? And what is their relevance to the issues of their own day? Because the writers were not writing in only in dialogue with Shakespeare. They were writing for their own contemporaries. Okay, so we'll come back to some of these questions. Now back to the tragic Shylock. The burlesque of the merchant began to appear shortly after the play starts to look less like a romantic comedy and more like the tragedy of Shylock. Indeed, the more or less tragic Shylock was first introduced by Edmund Keane in 1814. Prior to Keane, Shylock had been presented as a comic buffoon or a melodramatic villain. 
Thomas Doggett played Shakespeare for laughs in The Jew of Venice, Gren uh, Granville's comic adaptation in the early 1700s, and Charles Macklin, thank you very much. Okay, there's Macklin. Macklin played Sherlock as a ferociously menacing melodramatic villain and did some 316 performances in the latter half of the 18th century. Now Keane, uh, 1814, 1815, uh, his Shylock, by contrast, was intense, energetic, and passionate. And while still a villain, as John Gross writes, was endowed with a large measure of dignity and humanity. By his example, Keane also encouraged other leading actors to seek for their own ways to represent Shylock more sympathetically. For example, Edwin Booth played him in the kind of orientalized, the patriarchal way. And he ended the play with Shylock's agonized departure from the courtroom at the end of Act Four. There is a whole Act Five. But this is the era of the actor-manager, the great actor-manager, and he plays Shylock. So when Shylock leaves the stage, there's no point in going on with the play. There's nothing, nothing else worth doing. So they end it, you see, with Shylock's departure, cut out Act Five. This abbreviated ending, in Toby Lelyveld's words, became the rule rather than the exception in the period. Uh, and this tendency toward the sympathetic child lasted all through the 19th century, and it still is going, going on. Beginning in 1879, even later than the burlesques, Henry Irving, um, who sometimes restored the fifth act and sometimes didn't, developed an interpretation marked by intense pathos and a keen sense of injury. This rehabilitation of Shylock coincided with a growing Jewish population in England and its gradual absorption into English society. Although Edward I had banished, banished Jews from England in 1290, under the Tudors there are records of a few individuals who can be identified as Jews or as formerly Jewish converts to Christianity. For example, Lopez, the doctor who was uh, accused and convicted of, of involved in a plot to poison the queen and was, uh, was hung and quartered. While uh, under the early Stuarts, there's evidence of a small colony of Iberian Jews in London. Jews were officially permitted to resettle in London only after 1655. 100 years later, almost, in 1753, the Jewish Naturalization Bill, colloquially known as the Jew Bill, granting citizenship to a small number of foreign-born Jews, was passed, but it was quickly repealed. And the Merchant of Venice was performed to drum up uh, opposition to the Jew Bill, uh, get it repealed, with Macklin in the role. At this time, the Jewish population of England was about seven or 8,000. By the early 19th century, time of Keene, there were maybe 12 to 15,000 Jews in England, and by mid-century, the time of the burlesques, 30 to 37,000. Moreover, Jews who came to England in the late 18th and early 19th centuries were entering a country which, at least some parts, of, where some parts of the upper levels of society had absorbed Enlightenment principles, and where England in general had become a more secular society, so that traditional diab diabolized Jews, images based on theological views of Jews as the enemy of Christ and Christians, to many began to seem old-fashioned. Richard Cumberland wrote a sentimental comedy called The Jew in 1794, where he presented a Jewish miser who lives very abstemiously, but he does so in order to save money so he can give it away to those in need. This didn't please everybody. William Cobbett, writing in the early uh, 1800s, objected to the idea of a generous Jew, at least on stage, and decried the fashion, in his words, of rescuing certain characters from the illiberal odium with which custom has marked them. 
In 19th century fiction, despite reactionary attitudes like Hobbit's and the occasional throwback to diabolized stereotypes, the tendency was largely toward a similar rehabilitation of stereotyped Jewish characters. Critics like Edgar Rosenberg, the author of From Shylock to Svengali, have noted the emergence and influence of such figures as Sir Walter Scott's exoticized patriarch, Isaac of York, and later in the century, after the burlesque, George Eliot's cosmopolitan hero, Daniel Deronda. On the stage, as we have seen, leading tragic actors were developing more sympathetic ways of portraying Shylock, even though no performance of the text could avoid the moment when Shylock the Jew is about to use his freshly whetted knife to carve a pound of flesh from the breast of Antonio the Christian. But these mainstream productions preserved sympathy for Shylock by making it seem as if he was goaded into fury by the malicious teasing we hear about or see enacted and by Jessica's elopement and theft of his money and jewels, and especially his line about the theft of his ring, which she later trades for monkey, his turquoise, I had it from Leia when I was a bachelor, which suddenly gives a whole dimension of to Shylock's life, which is nowhere else in the play, a man who loved and was loved, but then it's shut down. So they, they exploit these things in order to pres uh, maintain and generate sympathy for Shylock. Once the threat of Shylock's cutting Antonio's flesh had passed, and Portia had cited the statutes putting him in jeopardy, 19th century actors found they could evoke additional sympathy for the Jewish usurer in the courtroom scene itself through such elements as the rapid reversal, the idea of the forced conversion, Gratiano's Jew baiting, and Shylock's uh, alleged illness, and of course his exit. But if mainstream revivals of the merchant through the 19th century portrayed a dignified, humanized Shylock, early Victorian burlesques, in addition to restoring touches of Dockett's buffoonery or Macklin's malice, essentially grafted the role of Shylock onto a relatively recent secularized image of the Jew, the old clothes man. In other words, as the Jewish presence in English grew and as Enlightenment principles spread, theatrical representations of Shylock developed along two contrasting tracks. One is the high road, the mainstream revivals of the merchants, starring Keane, Booth, and others, portraying a dignified, humanized Shylock. And then there's the low road, the burlesques, only the ones that uh, I found, which make Shylock into the same contemporaneous stereotype, the Jewish old clothes man. Uh, with one exception, Blanchard's uh, elevate Shylock one notch into a pawnbroker, one step up from peddling on the street, and gives him a shop next to the shop of the fishmonger Antonio. I'll tell you more about that later. Where Shylock appears in only five of the 20 scenes in Shakespeare's text, he is far more prominent in these Victorian burlesques of the merchant, where he and not Antonio is the title character. Only a few scenes in these virgin versions include scenes which do not involve Shylock. Telford, for example, has a scene between Jessica and Lancelot. Broom includes the choosing of the caskets, but compresses it into one scene. Blanchard, too, has the casket scene, but it's set in Portia's tavern, where Bassanio, her single suitor, there aren't the others, who, by the way, is a teetotaler, must choose the right cask, or rather a casket, or rather cask, from the barrels of gin, rum, and brandy, unlabeled, <laughs> presumably by sampling their contents. Some texts include the elopement of Jessica and perhaps a few scenes before and after, though the DeWitt text eliminates Lorenzo and has her elope with Antonio. Saves an actor. That way. <laughs> Some include Shylock's scene with Tubal, while all, like the one where he sings The Wearing of the Green, while all of them include, must include the two obligatory scenes, the one where Shylock negotiates the loan, 
and the one where he's prevented from collecting the agreed-upon collateral on that loan, the pound of flesh. The one slight exception is Blanchard's version, which survives only in manuscript, where the lines referring to a pound of flesh are crossed out and instead are replaced by lines referring to a pound of hair. <laughs> and we'll tell you more about that too. A glance at the loan-making scene in all four versions suggests their common elements as well as their distinctive qualities. Telford's treatment of the loan-making scene is surprisingly close to the Shakespearean original and its general contour, if not its tone. It opens with Shylock's actual opening line from 1-3 of Shakespeare's play, 3,000 ducats for three months. Shylock seems to be toying with Bassanio, as in Shakespeare. When Antonio enters, Shylock speaks his aside, changing a word here and there, how like a swindling publican he looks. And while he expresses hostility toward Antonio for bringing down our Venetian rate of usance, Shakespeare's word for usury, and for venting diatribes upon our dire tribes. Yeah, there you go. That's italicized in the text, lest anybody should miss it. Gone is the religious animosity of Shakespeare's, I hate him for he is a Christian, or the malice of, if I could get him once upon the hip, I would feed fat the ancient grudge I bear him. Gone. At the end of the aside, when Shylock finally addresses Antonio directly, he offers to spout, that's Victorian slang for sell, to spout him a watch or handkerchief. Similarly, whereas Shylock follows his Shakespearean counterpart in reminding Antonio of previous insults, the resentment is expressed and the loan initially denied in a duet sung to an air entitled Sprig of Shillelagh, more Irish melodies. However, in a conciliatory gesture, Shylock offers the loan interest-free but with the stipulation of a pound of flesh as collateral, and all three characters join in singing a trio polka and dance off stage together in the so-called breakdown dance that ends many scenes in burlesque. Uh, the loan-making scene in the DeWitt version, the DeWitt version is interesting, it's published in America. You have the uh, title page on the, on the handout, uh, on this handout. Uh, it's published by this company that made its uh, money by uh, selling scripts for performance, drawing room performances by amateur, amateurs. And they sell minstrels, what they call Ethiopians shows. And, and, uh, but I'm pretty sure this comes from England because it has many references to London. And the picture across the page, across the handout, uh, shows Shylock with his three or four hats, which is sort of the marker of the English version of the old clothesman, as I'll explain. Uh, later on. So even though this one is published in New York, I do think it represents the Victorian uh, burlesques and uh, many things crossed over uh, that way. So the DeWitt scene follows the rough, the, the loan-making scene in, in the DeWitt version follows the rough contours of Shakespeare's scene but heightens both farce and malice and blends them in its own interesting ways. Bassanio and Antonio meet on the street. The list of characters describes Antonio as an impecunious curbstone broker, and Bassanio as another, still more impecunious. Their relationship is far removed from Shakespeare's idealized Renaissance friendship. Although Bassanio seeks a loan to cover his wooing expenses, Antonio is not inclined to loan any more money to a man already deeply in his debt, and only relents when Bassanio offers him halves in the fortune of my future wife, who, he boasts, is a member of the aristocracy. <laughs> yes. Let us now turn to Shylock's first entrance in the loan-making scene in the Dewitt version.
In this version, his entrance is preceded by his offstage cry, clo, 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 that's short for clothes. While the stage direction that follows reads, enter Shylock left with four hats on his head, a sheaf of umbrellas under his arm, and a bag over his shoulder. After he enters, singing a song to the tune of Fra Diavolo, the title song of Daniello Bear's comic French opera, which premiered in 1830, he announces that he has come Mit my traveling shop, and asks if asks if anyone has old clover to shell, Vance loans, or has any old garments to schwap. I'm not making up the accent; it's printed that way. It's stage German, 19th century stage German, and it's spelled out that phonetically in the text. After Shylock enters, Antonio jauntily asks for the loan of three thousand ducats for three months. Shylock refuses, reciting the same litany of insults and injuries he has suffered from Antonio, being spot, spat upon, called dog, and so forth, and relents only when Bassanio proposes to Antonio that they seek, to, seek the loan from Isaac, a rival moneylender. That gets Shylock's attention. Rather than lose the business, Shylock agrees to the loan and stipulates interest of 50% and a forfeit of one pound, this is the line from that, one pound cut from your breast. But after the word phrase one pound, the stage word says savagely. One pound, one pound cut from your breast. You can imagine. Shylock dismisses this provision as a little chest, but Bassanio wonders, indulging in the apparently another, apparently unavoidable pun, is he a desperate Jew or is this mere jeu d'esprit? Yeah. That one is in practically all the burlesques. <laughs> The scene ends with Shylock plying his trade as an old clothes dealer by urging Bassanio to spend some of the newly borrowed money on clothes and jewelry he carries in his sack. Mein Gott, mein Gott, they'll fit him like a skin, he says. And as the stage direction puts it, holds up a babe's pinafore, which obviously won't fit, crossing the Shakespearean moneylender with the Victorian O'Clo man, the DeWitt has produced a homicidal clown. Blanchard's version. In Blanchard's version, Antonio and Bassanio go to Shylock's pawn shop for the loan of five pounds. Shylock rehearses his litany of complaints, this time having to do with the refuse and odors from Antonio's fishmonger shop next door. Their threat to seek the loan elsewhere also brings Shylock around. To show his goodwill, he sings a comic patter song, with nothing to do with the play, about a character named Sir Dilbury Diddle, a pagan knight who won a wager that his boots were watertight. One of these comic Victorian patter songs. They just wanted in there. They come to terms, agree on the collateral of a pound of hair, as I said, and Shylock celebrates the agreement with another song, this one to be sung to the tune of Where the Bee Sucks. Shakespeareans will recognize this from The Tempest. Where yon three balls hang on high, shows that money I supply. That's, that's, that's the <laughs> new lyrics to <laughs> Where the Bee Sucks. Finally, in the broom text, before approaching Shylock, Antonio realizes that he has nothing to offer as collateral for the loan except the flesh that covers my poor bones. Thus, as in some adaptations by Jewish playwrights, it is Antonio and not Shylock who proposes the pound of flesh as security. When Shylock is approached, he recites again two litanies of grievances against Antonio. The first is a series of practical jokes involving unkosher meat. He put unawares pork pies upon my seat, or filled my pockets chock full of pig's feet. The second list of litanies includes religious insult. He called me Hebrew dog, as well as spinning vile tobacco juice upon my coat. Nevertheless, Shylock agrees to make the loan, 
promises to join the others at an oyster bar across the street and sings a duet in praise of oysters with Bassanio. Oysters, of course, are no more kosher than, than pork. <laughs> but in a nasty touch, beyond anything in the Shakespearean original, Shylock remains on stage alone after the song and confides to the audience that he has entered into this silly bond because he has been itching for what he calls just this chance to cut his heart out, another homicidal clown. Now, the writers of the burlesque did not invent the stereotype of the Jewish old clothes man, and neither did Dickens. It was a commonplace of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, evolving out of the image of the itinerant Jewish peddler who first emerged in English popular culture in the mid or late 18th century. According to Frank Felsenstein, the new images of the Jew, first as rural peddler and then as urban old clothes dealer, supplanted in part medieval diabolized stereotypes. Those stereotypes have been discussed at great length by Joshua Trachtenberg. They involve ritual murder, host desecration, and well poisoning. I'll show you just one of them. This is William of Norwich. This is the first of the um, ritual murder accusations leveled against Jews that the children's, the boy is killed and his blood is to be used to make Passover matzah. And this spread from 1144 all through Europe and, and the Middle East. Um, but uh, Felsenstein also prints uh, some more interesting images. This one of the Jewish peddler, the one Jewish peddlers who roamed the English countryside with a box of merchandise supported by straps around neck or shoulders. By the early 19th century, this itinerant rural vagabond had become localized in London. And instead of offering a variety of easily portable goods, vaguely reminiscent of Autolycus's array of merchandise in the Winter's Tale, he specialized in used garments. This is the London peddler, which he both bought and sold. Unlike his rural predecessor, the new urban Jewish peddler carried a sack instead of the box. There's a nice description of him on the first page of uh, Harrington. Harrington is a novel by Mariah Edgeworth, published in 1817, which the image of the old clothes man is very crucial. She describes him as, as follows. An old man with a long white beard and a dark visage, this for a moment, holding a great bag slung over one shoulder, repeating in a mysterious tone the cries of old clothes, old clothes, old clothes. The title character, Harrington, recalls that as a little boy he saw this figure as he stood on a balcony with his nurse one evening. The nurse threatened that if he did not go off to bed immediately and quietly, she would call down to this man, Simon the Jew, and have him come up to the house and carry young Master Harrington away in his great bag. Whereas the rural itinerant peddler smacked of the wandering Jew, the old clothes man carrying off children evokes the blood libel of ritual murder, which we already discussed. The charge that Jews killed Christian children uh, for, for use their blood for matzah. From this moment on, young Master Harrington developed an intense fear and hatred of Jews, and he has nightmares, and he's neurotic as can be, and nobody knows what to do about it, because nobody knows what the nurse has told him. In the course of the novel, he comes to understand and overcome this uh, uh, this animosity that he has toward toward Jews. Mariah Edgeworth was an Anglo-Irish writer who previously had used sinister Jewish characters as part of the macabre machinery in some of her Gothic tales. Uh, just as Dickens was called to account by one of his Jewish readers in French, she was called to account by a Jewish reader in America and wrote Harrington in part to atone for the Jews in these Gothic tales and in part to expose the irrational origins and insidious, insidious transmission of anti-Semitic prejudices in England. In the middle of the 19th century, the Jewish old clothes man became something of a comic stereotype, 
His identifying attributes, sack, long black cloak, beard, exaggerated nose, swarthy complexion, are given a comic touch when he is shown with a stack of several hats on his head. The reason for the stack of hats is not that he is a precursor of Dr. Seuss's Bartholomew Cubbins, but that as an itinerant merchant, he has no other place to store the hats that he has bought or wished to sell. Much later in the century, as Compton Mackenzie was born in 1883, recalled from his childhood, dealers in secondhand garments, by then not necessarily Jews, as he says, went along calling old clothes, wearing on top of their own hats any hats they had purchased that day. Most of these markers, but especially the pile of hats, appear in drawings published in Punch and other places. So let's look at a few of these. Um, some of them are, every one of them has at least three hats. Uh, some of them are quite grotesque. Uh, and this is only about half of what I've been able to find. There, there, there are many more. So the, and what's interesting is that the hat, three hats, three or four hats, becomes the marker of a Jew, even when he's not a peddler. This is Disraeli, who was uh, converted to Christianity as baptized. His father had a fight with the synagogue and took his son off and had him baptized. Everybody knew he was a Jew. He announced that he was going to run for parliament, and he said he had crossed the Rubicon. The Pope funded him, Punch, which always poke funded him, uh, dressed him up in a Roman legionnaire's, uh, Caesar said, I'll cross the Rubicon. So there he is in his Roman legionnaire's outfit. But look, look at what he's wearing on his head, three Roman legionnaire's helmets. Uh, they don't say anything about a Jew, they don't say anything about a peddler, but it becomes, you see, in this, I think, rather subtle code, the marker of the Jew. There is a historical reality, of course, underlying this type, stereotyped image of the Jewish old clothes dealer, and uh, Todd Endelman, a very gifted historian of uh, Anglo Jewry, has described it as follows. The most characteristic Jewish street trade was, he says, the buying and selling of old clothes. Before the advent of mass-produced consumer goods, most British families regularly purchased second-hand merchandise, including the cast-off garments of the middle and upper ranks. Jewish old, clo old clothes men and dealers catered to the needs of an expanding urban population that could not afford to purchase new clothing. Hundreds of them fanned out each day through the streets and squares of middle-class and aristocratic London to purchase articles now deemed unfashionable or too worn for their owners. An American visitor to London in 1805 observed that old clothes were bought and sold, in his words, principally by Jews, who go about with bags on their shoulders, crying with a particularly harsh, guttural sound, clothes, clothes, old clothes. Henry Mayhew provided a detailed account of the Jewish old clothes men in his classic work, London Labor and the London Poor, first published in 1861. Even in the 18th century, Mayhew observed, the Jewish street peddler was, quote, depicted as wearing or carrying three cocked hats, one over the other, upon his head. The typical old clothes man, Mayhew continues, traverses every street, square, and road with a monotonous cry, sometimes like a bleat, of clo, clo. Mayhew claimed that there were now, that is around 1860, 500 to 600 Jewish old clothes men in London, down from 1,000 in the recent past, or a small but highly visible fraction of London's Jewish population. How typical they were of Jews in England is a moot point. They surely bore little or no resemblance to Spanish and Portuguese Jews, who were by then well settled as merchants, brokers, well into the middle class. Even most of the young German Jewish men who came to England in the 19th, early 19th century were from urban middle class backgrounds and had skills that enabled them to find work other than peddling. 
An occupational survey of Jews published by D.M. Evans in 1845 found Jews to be heavily involved in the wealthiest banking and brokerage firms, as well as working as wholesale merchants and shippers. Many Jews were also involved in smaller business enterprises, a goodly number in the luxury trades, and some of them as shopkeepers and street merchants, with a decreasing number engaged in peddling and dealing in used clothes. In short, why is the old clothes figure so prominent? Because, like all stereotypes, believing is seeing. <laughs> in the 19th century image of the Jew as the old clothes man, like the 18th century stereotype of the stockbroking Jew trying to pass as an Englishman, eclipsed in the popular imagination the presence of Jews in a variety of economic and social niches and totally eradicated the differences between, say, Iberian Jews who had settled in England after the readmission in 1655 and German-speaking Jews who had been immigrating in successive waves after the 18th century or so. The visibility of the relatively few old clothes men among the Jewish community nonetheless supported a stereotyped image whose darker criminal side may also have had some basis in reality. Mayhew learned from an informant who had been, who had been in the business for 50 years that some old clothes men bought articles at such a price that they must have known them to have been stolen. And two police reports uh, corroborate this, one in the uh, identifies Jews as the receivers as the receivers of stolen goods or fences, and another one says that the chief business of the old clothes dealers is to prowl about the houses and stables of men of rank and fortune, for the purpose of holding out temptations to the servants to pilfer and steal small articles, not likely to be missed, which these Jews purchase at about one third of the real value. Endelman notes that even leaders of the Jewish community worried about the number of Jews engaged in fencing, that is, in trafficking in stolen goods. And um, the story that uh, Murray told at the beginning about uh, Mrs. Davis, uh, she wrote to Dickens and complained about uh, his maligning uh, her people through the uh, making uh, Fagin the Jew. Uh, his reply is very interesting. He says to her, it before he decided to make up for it and wrote, write the mutual or mutual friend, his initial response was defensive. It is unfortunate. It unfortunately was true of the time to which that story refers that that class of criminal almost invariably was a Jew. So he says. In addition to other literary and archetypal sources, Fagin is said by some to have been modeled directly or indirectly on at least one real life Jewish criminal, the notorious Ike Solomons who was transported to Australia, and whose likeness I saw last summer unashamedly displayed in the Sydney uh, uh, Jewish Museum. It's now something of cachet to be able to trace your ancestry back to convicts in Australia. It used to be something not discussed. Now it's okay. The link between Dickens, Fagin, and the old clothes Shylocks of Victorian burlesques can hardly be overstated. Telford's Shylock complains, in his litany of insults and injuries, that Antonio has called him Old Fagin. Several Shylocks, in addition to their pseudo-German or Cockney Jewish accents, use the most famous of Fagin's speech mannerisms, the smarmy, saccharine, perhaps faintly pedophiliac expression when directed at Oliver, my dear. The burlesque text sometimes print this phrase as ma tear perhaps following the pronunciation of actors who played the role in many dramatic adaptations, which, by the way, began while the novel was still being published in serial form. Two American performers played both Fagin and Shylock. They apparently specialized in Jewish roles. In addition to his burlesque of the merchant, in which he himself played Shylock, Broom also wrote a melodrama entitled The Lottery of Life, 
which features a Fagan-esque Jewish villain named Morty Solomons, who runs a secret counter counterfeiting operation in the back of his old clothes shop. But the most persuasive piece of evidence linking the old clothes man Fagan and the Shylock of Victorian burlesques is the illustration accompanying a verse parody of the play by Thomas Inglesby, pen name for one Reverend Barham, which appeared in Bentley's Miscellany in 1842. Shortly after Dickens gave up the edit editorship of the miscellany. This is the trial scene from the, from the Merchant of Venice as represented in Inglesby's poem. Um, Shylock, of course, is there with his three hats. He's dressed in black. Uh, everyone else is in some kind of vaguely Renaissance costume. Um, Inglesby first introduces Shylock as a dealer in secondhand clothes, just as in the burlesques, rather than as a usurer. Antonio agrees to finance Bassanio's wooing expedition, but does not have the ready cash. They are discussing the situation when, I'm quoting from the poem, in the street they heard somebody crying old clothes. By the Pope, there's the man for our purpose. I knew we should not have to search very long. Solanio, run you, and Solario, quick, haste ere he get out of view, and call in that scoundrel old Shylock the Jew. And so on, and Anapests for several pages. Shylock's uh, first speech includes the Fagan-esque phrase, Matir. Thrice we are told of his three hats, and they are prominently displayed in the illustration that you see. Note the cloak, the beard, the sack. Sack is on the floor. Um, yeah, that's, that's on, on his side, next to his foot there. The, the sack is on the floor because in the play he has to have a knife and scales, and so they're following the text. So he, have, he doesn't have three hands. So he's the knife and scales, the sack goes down to the floor. But also notice the enlarged nose. This illustration is the work of George Cruikshank, Dickens's erstwhile collaborator who had also depicted five scenes involving Fagin and Oliver Twist, and who claimed credit for giving Dickens the idea of a Jewish fence. Here's one of the Fagin scenes Cruikshank drew for Oliver Twist. None of Cruikshank's depictions of Fagin represent him quite as the old clothes man, but his facial features, especially the telltale nose, suggest a shared family resemblance with the Shylock in his illustration for Ingleby's poem. The, the Fagan-esque Shylocks, old clothes Shylocks, differ markedly from the more idealized oriental patriarchs or dignified tragic victims of mainstream revivals of the Merchant of Venice, of course. These differences are especially telling in the endings of the burlesques. In Shakespeare, Shylock, as I said, does not appear in the fifth comedic fifth act and so is not included in the harmonious resolutions of the play after the trial, when the lovers return to Belmont. The burlesques, by contrast, had to end the evening quickly, and they did so by not shifting the scene back to Belmont. They also had to sustain the comic spirit of the occasion by ending on a note of general forgiveness, which had to include Shylock, the dominant character. In the final moments of Talfred's text, for example, Shylock readily agrees to convert, and Lorenzo returns the money Jessica stole from her father when they eloped. But in Broom's text, Shylock is converted, only not to Christianity, but simply to wearing a pleasant face. <laughs> and Lorenzo announces that he himself has turned Jew. Lorenzo's conversion to Judaism, like Shylock's to jollity, might have been, I suspect, a dig at such Christian proselytizing organizations as the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Among the Jews, founded in 1842, notoriously unsuccessful, spending a great deal of money and failing to make very many converts. Blanchard ends his burlesque with Antonio forfeiting not a pound of his flesh, but, 
as you know now, a pound of his hair, which he does by handing over to Shylock his wig. At this, everyone has a good laugh. Shylock repents his nasty intents and is pardoned, and he joins Portia in the final drinking song to the tune of The Devil Among the Tailors. A tune I haven't found yet, but I can't sing it for just as well. He is implicitly converted to a religion of mirth, music, and alcohol. <laughs> uh, in, in the duet, De Witt Burlesque, the final scene resists any sentimentalized reintegration of Shylock into the world of the play. As a token gesture toward his conversion, Portia orders those valuable tiles, that is his hats, removed from his knob, his head, and given to Antonio and his heirs. But Jessica, his heir, principal heir, has no interest in these markers of Jewish identity and curtly disowns her father and, as she says, cuts the old gentleman off without a stive. Stive is a penny. While Antonio, to show his magnanimity, refuses to accept those greasy tiles, the pile of hats, an act of generosity praised by Portia. Portia says, This conduct doth become thee even more than would those hats. Thou leads the way to further acts of mercy on our part. Now, Shakespeare's Portia preaches about mercy and may or may not practice it. That's debated by critics. But the hypocrisy of the DeWitt Portia is quite clear because the first of her further acts of mercy is to expel Shylock from Venice. Shylock, considering that you're not worth hanging, will let you off on one condition, that you, by the next gondola, Depart from here with your old clothes and time-worn hats, and never show your face here more. She then turns away to speak to Bassanio, but then notices that Shylock is still lingering on stage, and she angrily and sarcastically challenges him to try to turn the moment of his ejection from the play to his theatrical advantage, more or less as the great Shakespearean actors of the mainstream productions had been doing. Now, Shylock, she says, we are waiting for something of the tragic kind, Launch forth your fierce invectives, but don't use bad language if you can help it. <laughs> According to the stage direction, Shylock then prepares for a moment of high tragedy in the conventional sepulchral style. And as the stage direction says, Shylock rises, clenches his fists, rolls his eyes fiercely, and essays several times to speak. But instead of indulging in a histrionic lament, he, stage direction continues, finally relapses into a smile. In his next speech, the last before the final curtain, he refers directly to the audience and so shifts the frame of reference metatheatrically by stepping out of character, or better, through the character, moving from the world of the play into the world of the playhouse. Now, the world outside the playhouse, London playhouses, where the burlesque were originally produced, included an increasing number of Jews becoming more and more assimilated in various ways into English society. Uh, I won't read all this, but this is a list of the various uh, measures that were passed uh, removing what they call civil disabilities from uh, Jews. They gradually became more fully and fully integrated into, into political life. But if the story of English Jewry is mainly a happy one of growth in numbers and economic strength and the removal of civil disabilities leading to a passage of the Naturalization Act in 1859, that story, as some tell it, is also tinged, if not smeared, by backlashes of anti-Semitism. Looking at these old clothes Shylocks from our inescapable post-Holocaust perspective, we might be tempted to dismiss this image as yet another anti-Semitic trope. For some scholars, it may have, for some, I'm sorry, spectators, it may have been just that, 
But perhaps as Schock's work suggests, Victorian burlesques use the Jewish old clothes man solely for its entertainment value, although even such casual deployment of anti-Semitic tropes now strikes us as offensive, if not potentially poisonous. It does not appear to me that the burlesques served up in these served up uh, in these burlesques, that the images of uh, stereotyped images served up in these burlesques were part of a programmatic campaign against English Jewry per se. Although there were at the time various debates about these civil disabilities, and they went on all through the middle decades of the century during the time of the burlesques, and thus uh, may have been in the minds of some people. But unlike the burlesques, these debates focused on the Jews' uh, religion more than their foreignness and arose from the fear that England might one day be governed by non-Christians. Uh, there's a slide that I didn't have a chance to put in that shows a, a parliament at some future date where all the members of the parliament are sitting there with their stack of three or four hats on their head. Well, England is now ruled by Jews. Well, it took England a long time even to enfranchise Catholics and dissenters, so it's not surprising that the Jews got the vote rather late on. But I am inclined to think that Schach is right, that uh, they were out not for uh, programmatic anti-Semitism, but for, for fun, uh, a more innocent kind of fun. The burlesques dragged all of the characters down from their lofty Shakespearean pedestals, so it's hard to see these travesties as specifically anti-Semitic. As Schoch says, these burlesques had one agenda, and, or he feels, one agenda and one agenda only, to thumb their noses at Victorian cultural pieties. Shakespeare was certainly one such piety. And within Shakespeare, another was the rehabilitated, humanized, sentimentalized Shylock. Yet even if we accept Shock's view that the burlesques were apolitical and therefore did no harm, perhaps it's possible that they might have even done some good by undercutting the stereotype of their own stereotype use of the Jewish old clothes man. One place to look for such deconstruction is the 1853 production of Telford's version, in which an actor named Frederick Robeson He's only wearing one hat, unfortunately, for my argument. <laughs> but there it is, a picture of Robeson from the 1853 production, playing Shylock with what the Times reviewer called a strong Jewish dialect with the twang and the lisp pushed to the last degree of exaggeration, a caricature, in other words. Schoch suggests that Robeson's amalgamation of farce and pathos is in accord with a similar duality or multiplicity of tone within Telford's text. He illustrates the point by analyzing Tippity Witchet. That's the other handout you have. Tippity Witchout, a song Telford wrote expressly for Robson to sing at the end of his scene with Tubal. I haven't tracked this tune down either. Um, but we won't go through it all. But I, the important thing to note is that uh, the way it shifts in tone from stanza to stanza, and the stage directions mark that out very clearly. The first stanza addresses Jessica's elopement with Lorenzo. <coughs> Second stanza refers to her robbing him of the money and the ring, and its third stanza invokes the taking of Antonio's flesh. Stage directions mark the tone of each stanza respectively as pugilistic, crying, and laughing. Other reviewers located these sudden shifts of perspective and tone not only in the text but also in Robson's performance. Telford and Robson together use such abrupt transitions to keep the audience off guard, it seems to me, and somehow or other created a kind of Chaplinesque illusion that trapped inside this crude stereotype was a real person, in this case an immigrant Jew, closer to the social reality of the day than the oriental or effeminized Shylocks of mainstream revivals. Well, let me uh, conclude by going back to my first uh, two points about the value of the study of adaptations, their criticism of Shakespeare's original, and their relevance to issues of their own day. 
The burlesques, by definition, reduce Shakespeare's character, characters to, in stature, first by domesticating them, and secondly by slanting their motivations and relationships away from the romantic toward the tawdry, or some might say unmasking the tawdryness that is already there in Shakespeare, such as Bassanio's uh, fortune hunting. And, and Portia's hypocrisy would be another example. On that basis, one could say that these burlesques not only critique Shakespeare, but also lash out against bardolatry and other forms of Victorian piety. Shakespeare, Shylock, too, is inflected downward. Instead of the tragic hero of mainstream productions of the period, he now peddles used garments, as well as owning money, and the malicious side of his desire to collect his collateral of a pound of flesh, which we see only in flashes, becomes, uh, collapses into comic absurdity. And that's particularly true in the DeWitt version when he makes this metatheatrical turn and reveals himself as the actor, not uh, underneath the, uh, inside the stereotype. Um, he fulfills, in these burlesques, I would argue, that Shylock fulfills and deconstructs the stereotype of the old clothes man, a stereotype best understood in the context of 19th century English concern over the meaning of English national identity. If the old clothes dealer with his foreign accent is seen as a threat to narrow definitions of English nationhood, the burlesque representation of such figures reveals, of such a figure, reveals it to be nothing more than diver a diverting but finally rather flimsy theatrical construct, easily marked by the sophisticated spectators of burlesques as an embodiment of the xenophobic anxieties held by so-called respectable Victorians. In other words, making fun of the Boogeyman, just as Mariah uh, Edgeworth is explaining how uh, uh, an English child gets imprinted on his mind, this negative stereotype of a Jew and can't get it out and it gets passed along. Um, but in the burlesques, that, the, that figure is exploded as a, as a kind of bo boogeyman. Um, okay, a short coda, and then we can talk about, uh, I'll take questions. The short coda is this. Uh, there are many adaptions and appropriations of all of Shakespeare's plays. Um, there's a five-volume collection by Stanley Wells, which he did in 1977, way before any of us got into the act of looking at appropriations. And there it's been, sitting in our, our library, waiting for me to come <laughs> and use it. Um, but some of them, they don't all show up. I mean, there are other kinds of adaptations besides burlesques. So let me give you a couple examples very briefly. The Merchant of Santa Fe. <laughs> was a bilingual revision, 85% in English, 15% in Spanish, done in multi-ethnic Albuquerque in 1993 by a Chicano troupe. There, Shylock, like, like a surprising number of New Mexico Mexicans at the time, is a converso, or crypto, hidden Jew. In this version, Shylock is, is a recognition of the Jewish threads in the fabric of Chicano identity, controversial issue in Albuquerque at the time. Under pressure from a coalition of Jews and Catholics, including the local director of the Anti-Defamation League, the people putting on the play kept making Shylock more and more sympathetic. Uh, within the play, he shows Antonio the way to transcend the destructive and self-destructive Spanish code of honor, which in its modernized form of machismo was felt by the director and co-author of the play to be a plague on young men growing up in Chicano communities. Another appropriation, which Murray referred to earlier, is the Yiddish adaptation of 1947 in New York City, Shylock and his daughter, Shylock und sein Tochter in Yiddish. It's self-adapted from a 1943 Hebrew novel, by uh, the adaptation done by Maurice Schwartz, who played Shylock. 
Although set in Renaissance Venice, this adaptation evoked the Nuremberg laws of Nazi Germany and the suffering of Jews in slave labor and extermination camps. And in 1947, New York was filled with survivors uh, who come to New York, Yiddish-speaking survivors. Well, these are just two of uh, more adaptations, and uh, there are many more, but uh, they're stories for another evening. So we'll stop here. Thank you very much for listening. So questions or comments, or some of you are ready to sing some of these lyrics. <laughs> uh, Jamie Bronstein. And my question is this. It seems as though all of the burlesque that you've looked at are from the mid-Victorian period, which is a time where there's not a huge influx of Jewish immigrants to Britain at all. And I'm curious what happens to these burlesques um, during the period between the 1880s and the first influx of yeah. Eastern European, like yeah. Russian Jews yeah. to England, yeah. and the passage of the Aliens Act, and, right. you know, the real backlash against yeah. Eastern European yeah. Jews, are they still presenting Shylock in a friendly way, or does it change? Well, the burlesques, the burlesques really stop around 1870 and, and sort of morph into the music hall, or so I understand it. I've got to, I don't really know that enough about this yet. So you don't have, I mean, there were lots of relative, I mean, there were German Jews coming in all through the 19th century. Of course, not in the numbers of the Polish and Russian Jews after 1880, of course, in the pogroms. And there are other kinds of stereotypes on the music hall stage, the Sheeny, the Yid, uh, and so forth, just as there are in American, American vaudeville. Merchant of Venice doesn't seem to be used that way. At least I haven't found it uh, as, as a way of responding to this much larger influx of immigrants and, 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 uh, Immigrants who are Yiddish speaking, not German speaking, and are not urbanized and so forth. So there, there, there's more to do on the story of uh, images of Shylock in, uh, in the 19th century, but I've taken the story as far as I can at the moment up to, up to 1870. One, one image that comes up in, um, Linda Rosmovitz's book is the Jewish plutocrat, Rothschilds and so forth. But uh, she doesn't have anything to say either, and she's looking at the later Victorian period, and she doesn't have anything to say about the way the merchant is used to respond to the influx of Russian and Polish Jews. So I think there's an open, there's something there that we haven't found yet. Margot Hendricks. My question actually has to do with the sort of creation of the three hat peddler, because as you were talking, I was thinking about, especially in the in the 16th and 17th century, and even later, the gypsies or the Romani as wanderers and peddlers, and and the way in which they ended up sort of becoming morphed onto another culture. And I'm wondering if there was some sort of slippage mm -hmm. between that sort of historical representation of the of the traveler and the peddler and the way in which the three hat you know wandering the three hat peddler mm -hmm. as a Jew uh, sort of comes into into play there may I'm be I if you had you know thought about that. I I've, uh, no I hadn't thought about it it's certainly worth thinking about it. I certainly haven't found it and uh, Felsenstein who's my authority on 17th and 18th century or 18th century uh, uh, depictions of Jews didn't pick up on that either so it might be worth looking at the, the, yeah, the hat business is very mysterious. I, I asked, uh, by the way, it doesn't show up in American um, uh, depictions, stereotype depictions of Jews. I asked uh, Harley Erdman, a theater historian, and several of my colleagues back at home about this, and they, they can't find it. They don't, they're not aware of it on the American stage. So, 
So maybe there, where it comes from is, is really quite interesting, and if, uh, it's worth thinking about the possible the gypsies. If you ever find such images, uh, you send them to me, I'd be most grateful. Bruce Thompson, do we know whether Dickens attended burlesques? And uh, Dickens was a great theater goer and, and even acted. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I mean, this is where maybe uh, the Dickensians can help me out. But uh, I'm not. I don't know that he attended. I found no references. I looked at some biographies, um, but um, I, I don't pick up any time that he attended. John, do you know if he attended any burlesques? Or Murray, did he ever go to the burlesques? There, there's no evidence that I know specifically of his having gone to burlesques, but as you say, he was a great theater goer. Okay. And there are, for example, in Nicholas Nickleby, parodies sure. of contemporary sure. uh, theatrical performances sure. that verge on the burlesque yeah. uh, that, that are, in fact, burlesques. Yeah. And so it's, it's quite probable that he was familiar with the conventions of it, whether he actually attended... Yeah. The burlesques of the Merchant of Venice that you're referring to yeah. is something we'll probably never know. Yeah, but he probably knew about them. I mean, these were very popular this in the air, and I'm, even if he never set foot in the Olympia or the Strand, one of those theaters, it'd be, it'd be hard to imagine they didn't know what was what was going on there. I, I had a question too that since I have the microphone, <laughs> uh, and and it's it's to to ask if you know more, can tell us more about the. Uh, stage adaptations of Oliver Twist, which, as uh, you correctly state, began before the serial publication of the novel yeah. was finished, uh, and and it was it was common for for playwrights in a, in an age when there's no copyright to right. to steal the story and imagine how it was going to end. And sometimes <laughs> they even figured out how Dickens intended to end it. Um, but that would be the it would be interesting to compare the stage representations of Fagin. With yeah. these representations yeah. of Shylock, that yeah, I, I, that's something I haven't done, and uh, I would like to know more about that. And uh, that's a good, a good avenue to pursue. Thanks for mentioning it, Michael. A, a, a more general question: As you know, F. Murray Abraham right now in New York is performing in repertory uh, Barabbas in *The Jew of Malta* and Shylock in *The Merchant of Venice*. And uh, there's also a performance of Oliver Twist going on. You told us that when the Jews bill was passed, one of the ways in which there was propaganda against it was performances of the Merchant of Venice. Right. And you very uh, neatly pointed out how the Victorian burlesques undermined the uses that that uh, production would have made. Mm -hmm. But in our time, F. Murray Abraham, with the burlesques behind them and this varied history of acting of Shylock and of Fagin, how do you respond to uh, the question that Jewish communities over and over again raise? when they are told the local Shakespeare company is about to perform The Merchant of Venice. Luckily, they don't look at our syllabi and see that we're teaching Oliver Twist, but a parallel question might follow. 
Well, it's a good question. Um, I actually uh, was on campus when our theater department uh, decided to do The Merchant of Venice, and the director uh, was David Knight. He asked me if I would be a dramaturg for the production. A very shrewd political move on his part, I would say, having the, <laughs> having the director of the Jewish Studies program as your dramaturg uh, maybe would neutralize this opposition. Uh, of course, it gave me a certain amount of power, too, because if I felt uh, things were going the way I didn't like, I could walk. And then uh, he thought he'd have to answer to that. But we got along very well. And we, we, uh, I love being a dramaturg because uh, you have no real responsibility. You're just <laughs> the director has all the responsibility, <laughs> right? And uh, you just throw out ideas. And uh, um, one of my ideas he took, he liked the idea of having a, a larger Jewish presence in the play. Uh, so he added some mute characters. It gave more students a chance to be on stage. And they worked out some interesting stage business of themselves in the trial scene, for example. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of them was holding the scale, and when uh, it came time for the pound of flesh to be cut, he, he passed it to another one. He didn't want to be part of this. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll come back. That's really not the point of your question. But I, I told uh, uh, David Knight that he should talk to the community, that we should have some um, uh, uh, parlor meetings with uh, members of the Jewish community. I'm very active in the local Jewish community, and I know the leaders, and I, I said, uh, how about if we set up some of these meetings? He got a real earful from people who said, why are you doing this play at all? And he said, well, you know, we do all of Shakespeare. We haven't done The Merchant in 30 years. It's time to do it. Um, but I'm going to do it in a way that you won't find offensive. And they said, well, why bother? It's a, they feel it's a play that's inherently anti-Semitic. He said, no, it's a play about anti-Semitism. And they are, and some people, and we're never quite won over by that argument. Also, we agreed to have, uh, my instigation, talk back sessions after every performance with the actor and the directors and people in the audience. And that helped some people out. And then they said, well, what about when the matinees during the week for these kids from little towns, little farm towns around, they've never seen a Jew, they're coming in to see the, what about that? And I said, well, well, we'll, we'll find some money, we'll send graduate students out to talk to them about the play and the issues it raises. No, I, I was didn't. What I didn't want to happen was what often happens: the play gets up, it going, and then suddenly there's an, a, a violent, a strong reaction from the Jewish community. I didn't want him to be ambushed by that. I wanted him to know what was what was lying out there. And and of course, he he did it his own way. He did he didn't um, make a. It was a strong Shylock, but not necessarily a uh, a 19th century uh, sympathetic Shylock. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it is a live nerve uh, in, in the Jewish communities. I think, myself, there's value in, um, in having the play done because uh, the issues can be ventilated and discussed, and I think there's some value in that. Is, I mean, Chaucerians have the same problem with the nun's priest tale and Dickensians with it, and now in, in Champagne, the Bach uh, St. John Passion is being done, and there's a potential reaction brewing from the Jewish community, uh, St. John being the most anti-Semitic of all the Gospels. So the, these, these are problems. I mean, I love to see F. Marie Abraham, who's Lebanese, by the way. I didn't, I didn't know that. And uh, I heard from somebody who saw it that it's a very powerful performance. Uh, he's a tough man, not necessarily a softy or, or play for some... And, and in, in the Jew of Malta, that's, that's burlesque. They're, they're apparently burlesquing it. They're mm -hmm. taking it. It's over the top. And... Uh, uh, it sounds like an interesting way to, to do it. So I would love to go, but uh, my friend in New York tells me it's sold out. So there you go. Interesting follow-up. Um, I like the 
I like what you did, and I do think there's a, a problem around the Merchant of Venice, and we do teach it, which is very interesting, and there's a reception of the text in the classroom, but say not on the stage. Have you thought, or would you like to maybe reflect on why something like that doesn't happen around Othello, which is considered uh -huh. the other problem yeah. ethnic text? Yeah. Um, and, and I don't, I don't mean to put you on a spot, but no, it, no, it, it seems to me that those two texts should generate similar responses, yeah. and yet they don't. they don't. And there's a way in which Othello's the worst of the two in that he dies, even if it's mm. by his own hand, mm. at the end, and it's deeply humiliated. Similarly, um, you know, do you have any thoughts? Because I've been thinking about yeah, that. it's a good. So I'll, I'll think about it right now. I mean, I, 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 first of all, we avoided the problem for a long time by arguing that Othello was a tawny moor, not a black moor. Right? You're familiar with all that argument. That's just to, so we won't have to deal with the, the issue of his blackness. Although the text is pretty clear about it. Um, I think the. Uh, the Jewish community is very well organized, and uh, it got it got uh, Merchant of Venice out of the school curriculums in many places in as early as the 30s, and I think in some places not found its way back in. Um, I don't know that uh, the black community is not agitated in this way about about Othello. Not, I mean, maybe not, which is not to say they should, but it's just a fact. Well, I, they own it. I mean, they claim it, and they, there's an existence now that you can't play Othello as black. Right. 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 Is it possible now for the Jewish community to own that place and maybe do something akin to what the African American community did with the fellow and her kind of attacking head on that? Well, the Jews don't want to own it. Many, many Jews. They want to wash their hands of it. They want nothing to do with it. Some. Okay. As far as Jewish actors have played the role, but but um, nobody would insist, I don't think, on a, these days, on a Jewish actor has to play the role. In Chicago, there have been two productions at the uh, Navy Pier Theater in the last few years. Um, the one before they went to Navy Pier with a Hispanic actor playing playing the part, not as Hispanic, just just playing the part. It was a modernized production. He's a New York Jew in 1920s, and uh, he was excellent. He was wonderful. They then had a Jewish actor, Mike Nussbaum, playing, playing the role uh, just a couple of years ago. He had a lot of trouble himself, in very, and, and he added something that I'd never seen before, uh, which is a kind of stamp of Jewish ownership, you might say. As Shylock is leaving the courtroom scene, you know, he's, he, there are various ways he can leave. He can leave in pain, he can be sick, he can stalk out in defiance. But he started to stalk out, then, uh, or sort of... Um, walk away in a very weak sort of way, make a very weak accent. Then he pulled himself up and he said, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elheinu, Adonai Echad. is the Shema, the, the Lord is one. And uh, sort of the central prayer in Jewish liturgy, as if to undo the conversion, I suppose, and to reassert his Jewish identity. Now, Shakespeare didn't write that line. Uh, <laughs> but it came, it came from Mike Nussbaum and the director, Barbara Gaines, also Jewish, uh, decided to leave it in. Now, lots of people might not have understood what that line, non-Jews might not have understood. They, they could recognize it as Hebrew, and they know it's not Shakespeare. They don't may know exactly what it is. So, so, And then all these, these uh, re revisions that I'm, I'm dealing with, you know, a number of them by Wesker, for example. 
rewrites the play, calls it The Merchant. Uh, that was the one that Zero Mostel was in, and he died. And it never has been given proper production uh, anywhere. It's an interesting play. Uh, the Yiddish version, uh, you know, Charles Merowitz has a version. There, there are many, many uh, Jewish writers who have, you know, taken upon themselves to write the play that Shakespeare should have written, or the play that, <laughs> or to respond in dialogue with Shakespeare. This is another way to, way to do it. Um, there are some, there's some very interesting, I know one or two interesting plays by black playwrights. The Harlem Duet, uh, which is, has Othello there in the center of it, is a brilliant, brilliant play. I taught it. To, uh, it's in that collection, as you probably know, in that collection of adaptations. I don't know. Are there the same uh, number of? Uh, I mean, the Jews either want to have nothing to do with the play, or they want to, you know, do it through stage direction, or they want to rewrite it. So those are different modes. And I wonder if there's comparable uh, attacks on the play or responses to the play within the black community. To Othello. Well, I. Uh look forward to this anthology with Jewish responses which yeah, will carry you. forward this conversation uh, and I want to thank you for raising all these questions and telling us a fascinating story and asking all sorts of implicit questions about how Jews are implicated, implied, woven into uh, and part of and yet not part of this long tradition in uh, Western theatrical and literary culture. So thank you again, Michael, thank you. for a very rich evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.